We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Turing Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Cowstry, and today I'm joined by Tim Harford. Tim is a broadcaster for Radio 4's More or Less, which I'm sure many Turing Podcast listeners will be familiar with. And he's also a columnist for the Financial Times and author of several popular economics books. Today, we'd be talking about some of the themes from Tim's most recent book called How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to join you. No problem. I'll get stuck into the first question then, which is a very simple one. Can you tell us a bit about your background, how you came to be doing what you're doing now? What drove you to write this book in particular? Ah, goodness. Yes. I mean, I'm nearly 50, so it feels like there's a <laughs> danger of this becoming a very long story. So I'll, I'll try and keep it uh, brief. So I studied philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, generally specializing in the nerdy quantitative side of that. So uh, economics, economic theory, in the philosophy I did was was mathematical uh, stuff. But, you know, I wasn't trained as a statistician. I wasn't trained in data science. I wasn't trained in, in, you know, in mathematics beyond what was necessary for the philosophy and, and the economics. Um, so then I taught economics for a year at University College Cork great time. Went back to Oxford to study some more economics for a couple of years. And then I had a, a bunch of different jobs before eventually deciding what would be nice would be to tell people about economics. So I wrote a book called The Undercover Economist, which was published in 2005. And shortly after that, got a TV series about economics on BBC Two. Shortly after that, uh, I was asked to present more or less on Radio 4, which which already existed. It had been set up by uh, Michael Blastland, BBC producer, and Sir Andrew Dillot, who I think at the time was the head of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, so another economist. And I think the BBC thought, oh, so Sir Andrew is leaving. He's an economist. We needed, we needed another economist to present our statistics programme. I mean, they could have actually got an epidemiologist or a mathematical statistician or a data scientist or any number of people, but they, they thought, oh, yeah, it, this programme is presented by an economist. Uh, and sadly, no one else has had the chance to present it because I basically held on to that job since <laughs> 2007. Uh, I've also been writing for the Financial Times for nearly 20 years now. I had a column for the Financial Times for more than 15 years. And more recently, present the American podcast Cautionary Tales, which is a mix of storytelling and nerdy social science. So a whole bunch of different jobs, different varieties of journalism, columns, radio, podcasts, books. I've written nine books, I think. The most recent book is How to Make the World Add Up. And How to Make the World Add Up is really the book that reflects what I've learned presenting more or less, which is, uh, as I hope uh, some people will know, is a, is a radio show all about numbers in the news uh, and in life. So touching on issues of data science, statistics, but also media literacy, trust, belief and, and disbelief. So for a long time, people encouraged me to write a book about statistics 
because more or less was a you know, well-known show. Yeah, you should do a book about it. And for a long time, I didn't want to. And the reason I didn't want to was because there were lots of good books about statistics, and I really wasn't sure that I had anything to add. And the last few years, I realized I probably did have something to add. I had a couple of things I wanted to add. The first was I wanted to talk about statistics in a psychologically realistic way that reflected the fact that it's not just, oh, just explain stuff to people really clearly and then they'll get it. I mean, like, well, no, that's not why people choose to believe what they hear or choose to doubt what they hear. So I wanted to be very convenient if that was the case, but um... very convenient. And, and I I think a lot of people do hang on to that view of the world, (laughs) which I mean, sort of makes intuitive sense. I mean, in some ways we're rational creatures, right? Mm. And we always tell ourselves that the reasons we believe things is because we're persuaded by facts, argument, data, and logic. I mean, that's, that's not true, but that's what we, we kind of all have to tell ourselves that don't we? Mm. And, and so we tell ourselves that story about other people as well. And so, so that was one of the things I wanted to do in how to, how to make the world that up is to, to reflect that realism about what people actually believe and disbelieve and to try to help them think more clearly and to understand their own biases. The second thing I wanted to do, which I think was equally important, was to make the case for statistics, for evidence, for numbers. Because I realized that it was a weird thing. All the statistics books that I loved and respected, with, with maybe one or two exceptions, but almost all of them, actually seemed to have a very negative view of statistics. And it wasn't that they were negative about statistics. It was that they were negative about the way that statistics were uh, abused. So the most famous of, of all, of course, is Daryl Huff's How to Lie with Statistics, the, the most popular book about statistics ever written. We could talk more about that little book. But there's Ben Goldacre's Bad Science, brilliant book. There's uh, John Allen Paulos's Innumeracy, another great book. I mean, I mean, but these are books about statistical mistakes. Mm. They're, they're all about things going wrong. And I know that Paulos doesn't think statistics are useless and maths is useless. He believes the exact opposite. But if you read his book, you just get lots and lots of examples of things going wrong. And the same with Ben Goldacre. I mean, there there is no greater champion in the country of data science uh, being used for positive social change than Ben Goldacre. But his book's called Bad Science, and it's all about the numbers being misused. And so I thought, there's something... There's a trap here. I wouldn't say that, you know, that Ben had made a mistake or that John had made a mistake, but there is a trap. There's a danger. If that's what we do when we talk about statistics, then it's very easy to leave people with the impression that it's all lies, all nonsense. Mm. That all science is bad science. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's like um, well, it's like a stage magician's trick. Like, you know, go and enjoy the show. But of course, don't, don't ever believe that what you're witnessing is real. Of course, it's None of it's real. Of course, it's all a trick. And I'll show you how the trick's done. It, that, that's, that's the risk that we end up when we talk about data science and we talk about statistics and we talk about evidence. There's that risk that we give that I- impression, even when we're actually, we think that mm. we're, or we imagine we're championing. Right, exactly. Good statistics. Because, I mean, because stuff going wrong, I mean, this is true even for how to make the world add up. There's the stuff going wrong is the fun stuff, right? That's when it's easiest to explain. Right. Statistics is is when you can point to somebody doing something stupid. Um, but yeah, we've got to do more than that. And so that that's what I wanted to do with how to make the world that up. And that's one of the 
one of the things I was trying to do in the introduction, where I compare and contrast Daryl Huff's How to Lie with Statistics with uh, Richard Doll and Austin Bradford Hill's work on the statistics linking smoking and lung cancer, which was published in the same year. And to say, okay, well, you've got this very famous book that says it's all, you know, it's all nonsense, it's all scoundrels. And you've got these people, these two researchers who are discovering a truth about the world you couldn't possibly discover without statistics, and which is going to go, go on to save millions of lives, maybe tens of millions of lives, maybe, maybe hundreds of millions. It's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So don't fall into that trap of just, well, here's another bad graph, here's another bad chart, right. here's another bad map. There's more going on. Graphs are, and charts actually are useful in a lot of cases, so that's important to know. And um, yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned both um, Daryl Huff and Ben Goldacre. Um, you and I actually connected over our shared knowledge of Ben Goldacre. Um, I managed to convince you to come on this podcast after you um, interviewed me for a for a quote for the Financial Times article you wrote about um, uh, something that Ben Goldacre has been doing recently. But it's knowing what I know about him and um, based on what you just said, um, even though he wrote the book Bad Science, uh, as you as you said, I'm sure he, you know, in reality, he's a champion of, of good science and good oh, that, and best he practices. Absolutely is. He but absolutely which is, is. Yeah. compare and contrast to the other person you mentioned, uh, Daryl Huff, um, who, you, again, as you mentioned, this is someone who you talk about in the introduction of your book. And um, he wrote this 1954 book, How to Lie with Statistics. So similar to Ben Goldacre, he was talking about things that can go wrong. But as you go on to elaborate on Daryl Huff's story, he sort of um, wasn't quite so well intentioned in his, um, you know, ex explanations of how to lie with statistics. So yeah. how, how does one lie with statistics and how did Daryl Huff go on to lie with statistics? And you, you already mentioned the... Um, uh, about his contemporaries linking um, smoking to cancer there. Yeah, which is not a coincidence, yeah. So people got very cross with me, actually, for suggesting that Daryl Huff had done anything wrong. Um, <laughs> because they so many, so many of my fellow nerds have read Daryl Huff, maybe the first statistics book they ever read. It was certainly the first statistics book I ever read. And and it's brilliant. I mean, How to Lie with Statistics is, is a brilliant book. It's full of brilliant examples. You really will understand um, the abuse of statistics much better as a result, um, which is why it pains me deeply to criticize Daryl Huff. But I, I think when people know what happened and what he did, uh, they, they come around to my viewpoint. So to a classic Daryl Huff example uh, is uh, pointing out that Stork's deliver babies. Statistically speaking, storks deliver babies. And there are a number of ways that you can make this argument, but the, um, the, the, I think the most modern and the most convincing is, is simply that you can plot a correlation uh, between the uh, breeding population of storks in various countries and the number of babies born in those countries. And you'll see a very strong correlation. Uh, and in fact, there's a, there has been an academic paper published about 20 years ago, storks deliver babies, P equals 0 0.008. I think most people listening to this podcast will be nerdy enough to, to know what that's referring to. So, so there's a strong statistical relationship, but what's driving the strong statistical relationship um, is it, that, is it that in fact babies do come from storks, just like my mother told me when I asked too many questions about my little baby sisters? No. Big countries, Germany, Poland, France, lots of room for babies, lots of room for storks. Little places like Andorra, the Vatican City, 
There's no room for babies, no room for storks. I mean, it's that simple. You're, you're basically indirectly measuring, is this a big country or not? So Huff used that sort of example to illustrate the kind of ways in which we're misled. Okay, so let's talk about smoking and cancer. When US Congress in the 1960s was holding a hearing as to whether they should put health warnings on cigarettes, uh, an expert witness showed up, testified in front of the Senate, and explained that statistically speaking, you could prove that storks deliver babies. And when the Senate chair said, do you seriously mean to suggest that there is as, as casual a connection between storks and babies as there is between cigarettes and lung cancer? And the expert witness said, the two seem to me about the same. And it was Daryl Huff. And Daryl Huff showed up to testify in front of Congress that he felt that the proof that cigarettes cause cancer is a, of a similar quality to the proof that storks deliver babies. Why was he doing it? Well, I mean, I don't know the specifics of exactly why he chose to testify, but uh, what we do know is that he was paid quite a lot of money by <laughs> the tobacco right. industry. They commissioned a sequel to How to Lie with Statistics called How to Lie with Smoking Statistics, um, which was uh, was never published, but the um, it's been gathered. I'm trying to remember the name of the researcher, Alex, uh, it'll come to me. So there's there's a there's a young You'd have thought that would undermine them a little bit, though, if, if then <laughs> they went on to say, actually, yeah, we were lying, but... Uh, yeah, no, I mean... And here's how. Well, well the, so, what, so How to Lie with Smoking Statistics, the point was, who's doing the lying in How to Lie with Smoking Statistics um, is the epidemiologists. Right. The oh, lying. I see. Right. Okay. It's the, okay. it's the, it's the, the oncologists, it's mm -hmm. the medical statisticians, mm -hmm. it's the health establishment who are coming up with all these, you know, these silly graphs and fake correlations, uh, scaring people that cigarettes are going to kill them. Uh, whereas in fact, there's no evidence. It's just, uh, it's just a load more nonsense, a load more dodgy graphs, a load more dod dodgy percentages, and you don't need to pay any attention to it. Um, and yeah, so this is, um, you know, people, it, the, the, this book has been gathered on the internet. You can do the various snippets and so on, because there was this huge, uh, release of documents from the tobacco industry as part of a big uh, legal settlement in, in the 1990s. So you can go and find like the drafts of this book that Huff put together. And he was paid quite a lot of money. As I say, it was never published. But I think what, what's really striking is that there's a very clear line between this wonderful little book he published in 1954 saying, uh, be careful with all these dodgy statistics there are out there, to this process then of weaponizing doubt mm -hmm. and saying, uh, you don't want to believe all of this nonsense that these cancer doctors are telling you. And do you think it's a similar thing that's occurred with climate change, with the fossil fuel industry, for example? Well, well, well what do you think, Ed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I do I think mean, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that too. And we've got very good evidence. So the um, there was a book by the historians Naomi Oreskes and um, I forget her co-author called... Uh, Merchants of Doubt. Right, okay. So Oreskes and her co-author published this, and what they did was to track the links between the campaign by the tobacco industry to throw doubt on the science of smoking and lung cancer. You've got the same people using the same techniques, paid by the same, often by, by the same lobby groups, to trying to cast doubt on the science of climate change. And it's the, it's the you know, it is often exactly the same people doing mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. but it's certainly the, the same technique. Uh, 
because it turns out doubt is quite psychologically potent. Right. I described some of the research in how to make the world add up on this. If somebody wants to to embrace a particular point of view, if someone has a preconception, so for example, I don't really want, I smoke and I don't really want to believe that smoking is going to kill me. I drive a car and I fly on holiday and I don't really want to believe that that's going to destroy the planet. You can try and persuade somebody that cigarettes are safe and try and persuade somebody that carbon dioxide is not warming the planet. What's easier is to attack the contrary view. So rather mm. than persuading someone that cigarettes are safe, you attack the view that cigarettes are dangerous. You say, well, there's no evidence. We need more research. Scientists disagree. Uh, can you really trust these guys and their dodgy data? Same with, with climate, climate change. Really hard to prove that the climate's not changing and that CO2 isn't doing anything. But you don't need to do that. You just need to basically say, well, it's all very complicated. It's all very confusing. Science mm -hmm. is very patchy. Yeah. The scientists keep getting stuff wrong because, of course, scientists keep getting stuff wrong. They always get stuff wrong. And you see some of the same stuff going on with, um, with various kind of fringe covid groups so you can try to persuade people that there is no such thing as covid you can try to persuade people that um you know the vaccines are actually going to inject microchips in them that's hard what's not hard is to basically say well no one seems to understand covid they don't really seem to know what they're doing mm. they don't really seem to know how it spreads they don't really seem, seem to understand how immunity works right, these vaccines right. don't seem to be working quite as well as we thought um you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. These things are really easy to Reaches say. a lot more people than yeah. you'd have to and be think, a real and the committed. They're, they're, sort of, they're sort of true, right? I mean, it is sort of true that nobody completely understands COVID. And it is true that scientists have made right. mistakes. Yeah. And it is true that the vaccines aren't quite as good as we originally hoped when the results first came out in December 20, you know, in November and December 2020. I mean, all these things are true. But you hold on to them too tightly and you get this very toxic view of the world in which nobody knows anything. Right. Yeah. Rather than what we, what we should have is this view that's like, well, you know, knowledge is imperfect. It advances one mistake at a time. There's always a process of disputation and trial and error in science. And, and you know, we slowly we slowly learn about the world. And of course, there'll be some missteps. But how how do you decide, like, when you as an individual don't want to let's say accept a claim that someone's making be they a scientist journalist politician or anything how do you decide whether you are being just skeptical in a healthy way that's that's logical versus going into this more cynical frame of mind where it's like well there's nothing that they could do to prove it i mean yeah. going back to what you said before i mean we we were taught at school that it's like correlation doesn't equal causation. And I guess that's pretty much Darrell Huff's whole point, which is like, well, clearly we know from the babies and stork example that correlation doesn't equal causation. So it's reasonable to assume that in the case of smoking and lung cancer, correlation doesn't equal causation. And yet what the scientists, I suppose, had to actually do was come up with some you know, mechanism that explained and, you know, by eliminating other variables that could also have been the thing causing, uh, you know, lung cancer, they realized that actually, you no know, smoking is the variable that's causing it. And the same, you know, goes with CO2 and, you know, rising temperatures. Um, yeah. But as as an outsider, as a someone who's not literally a scientist trying to figure this out for themselves, how do you decide whether you're being you know, too skeptical and sliding into cynicism or, or being like just skeptical enough that you're not like just accepting everything that some authority is telling you. 
Yeah, it, it's a great question. So, I mean, there's the there's the there's the easy way and the hard way. Um, the easy way we can get to it's really rule one of my book, I think. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, the hard way I think is interesting as well, though. So, if you talk, if you look at smoking, so start with this observation: lung cancer is dramatically increasing through the 1930s, 1940s. People have also started smoking cigarettes a little bit before that, and people have also started driving cars and they've also started putting asphalt down everywhere so just observing the correlation you could say well it could easily be something to do with the car exhausts or the f or the chemicals being released by all this asphalt or maybe it's the cigarettes or maybe it's something else so richard doll thought it was asphalt i think that's that's what one interesting thing that his working hypothesis was it was nothing to do with cigarettes um so you've got these broad correlations and that at that point you're at the the stalks and babies level. Like there's some stuff, there's, here are some things that might plausibly have something to do with it that are all increasing at roughly the same time. Well, it's not it's not quite at the stalks and babies level in in the sense that... There's a mechanism, right? Yeah, they, they have a hypothesis at least. Well, there's a mechanism for the stalks as well. The stalk brings the baby in a big, uh, <laughs> a big blanket. <laughs> I, I mean... I suppose so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but... So well, what Dolan Hill did was to say, okay, we're going to, it wasn't quite a randomized experiment. I mean, it's hard to know how ethically you could, could conduct a randomized experiment with, with cigarettes. But what they did was they took a bunch of people who had um, lung cancer, who presented at hospital with lung cancer, and a bunch of people of the same age who presented at hospital for any other reason. And then they went and tracked their smoking habits. So they interviewed them or they got various nurses and researchers to, to interview them. And they basically said, oh, well, it is interesting that all the people who have lung cancer are smokers, like all of them, because um, lung cancer is actually quite unusual and smoking was very common. And lots of people who didn't have lung cancer were, already, were all smoker, also smokers, but almost nobody presented with lung cancer if they weren't already a smoker. Also, the more heavy the smoking, the more likely it was that you would develop lung cancer. So there you go. Okay, well, that's um, that's interesting. Okay, well now we've got more detail. It's still a correlation, but it's a much more detailed correlation. There's a more plausible correlation. It's, it's harder to explain. And we've got some, although we don't fully understand what's going on, we've got a sort of physical mechanism. You're you're ingesting lots of chemicals and you're inhaling lots of chemicals into your lungs. Maybe one of those chemicals is causing a problem in the lungs. So that okay. But then you go. Okay, so what are the alternative explanations? So. Interestingly, uh, Ronald Fisher, one of the great statisticians, never believed that smoking caused lung cancer. Possibly, I mean, he was paid by the tobacco lobby. It's not clear whether he developed <laughs> those views because he was paid by the tobacco lobby or the tobacco lobby paid him because he had those views. And so, you know, the more mm. prominence you can get this guy, the better. Um, he was a lifelong smoker. Maybe it was something to do with that. Fisher had a couple of hypotheses. One was maybe the early stages of cancer irritate the lung and then smoking is is people take up smoking to soothe that irritation i mean it's absurd i think the, but the, I think the very <laughs> fact that that that's your alternative hypothesis sort of starts to suggest hmm maybe something dodgy about this mm. so but um another theory is maybe there's something genetic that predisposes people to become smokers and also that predisposes people towards lung cancer. Mm -hmm. That's probably equal, equally absurd. I guess these are really hypotheses that come from trying to avoid the the other the main hypothesis rather than just out of nowhere. Yeah. Whereas when, when you think about the stalks and babies, the hypothesis that um, 
maybe it's just big countries have got lots of room for both. Like, yeah, that'll do it. I mean, <laughs> obviously. So I think, you know, you know, if you, if you really take this seriously and you think hard about it and you, and you read, I mean, the modern world, you'd be reading the, uh, the expert blogs and you'd be on epidemiology Twitter or whatever, or, or climate change Twitter, you know, you could, you could read these kinds of discussions. And even if you weren't a specialist, you could understand the principles involved. Um, so anyway, I said, that's the hard way. So the easy way, I think, I don't, know, I don't want to pretend it's too easy, but I think a very easy step that everybody should take when they're receiving information is to ask themselves how they feel, like examine their own feelings. I call it Darth Vader's principle, search your feelings. Uh, and it's really important because you become aware that almost everything that you see on, on Twitter and newspapers, TV news, almost everything you see um, provokes an emotional reaction. That's why you're seeing it. That's why you're being shown it. The algorithm is showing stuff that's getting people riled up. Mm. Newspaper editors are choosing headlines that have emotional impact. Um, so notice that emotion. Ask yourself what the emotion is. Do I feel kind of contempt for my enemies? Do I feel vindicated? Do I feel afraid? Do I feel, well, that's fake news, it can't possibly be true. Like, what is my knee-jerk gut feeling? And then having noticed that, go back and have another look. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a, some you know, magic cure for all misinformation, but I just think realizing that we're all emotional beings, that everything that we're believing or disbelieving comes through an emotional lens, and just noticing what that emotional lens is, and then going back and a second time to have a little think, it's amazing how far that will get you. And, and it's not a very difficult habit to cultivate. It doesn't take long as a reflex. It's like, oh, I'm having feelings. Mm, let's, yeah. let's think about it a bit more. I guess another way of doing that perhaps would be try to imagine yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't have any emotional stake in, in whether what you're seeing is true or false in terms of some claim and some statistic backing it up. Because if yeah. you are someone on the other side of the world that, you know, didn't care about you know whether x causes y in england um then how would you interpret this graph and, and so on yeah i think that's right and it, it is interesting that there have been occasional certain things about covid that polarized very strongly in the us and not in the uk right and so you could you could see a little bit because mm, that's interesting you, you'd, you'd sort of be observing this polarization from a distance so i remember there was what there was one example where an american journalist had tweeted a picture of some people in the uk playing outside in the snow in, in a london park i think this was january 2021 mm. and it was of course one of those telephoto lenses that foreshortens everything and makes everyone closer together but even given that you're like it's a bunch of people outside <laughs> not very close to each other, throwing snowballs. And this American journalist had tweeted, no wonder uh, the UK is currently suffering the worst COVID spike in the world. Everyone's mask, you know, mingling maskless. And you look, you know, from the point of view of, the, of a, just as a, an impartial, well, I'm not completely impartial because of course I'm living in the UK, but from somebody who doesn't have a, the same kind of stake in the masks versus not masks, it became so polarized in the US. Oh, I see, like, right, yeah. So people need to wear a mask to have a snowball fight. Also, at the time that the photo was taken and the time the tweet was made, infection rates have been coming down for two weeks. Mm -hmm. So like, this is so. First of all, I don't think it's true that you need to wear a mask when you're in a park with somebody, 
even when COVID's really bad, I don't think it's true. But there was this political view. You know, the blue states were like, everyone needs to wear a mask all the time. And the red states were like, no one should ever wear a mask. They're, they're for weak communists. Um, <laughs> and you know, these, these absurd, absurd extremes right. kind of define themselves. Whereas a more reasonable view is maybe you should wear a good quality mask when you're in a confined space. Yeah. It seems to make more sense. But, but also, like, it, you know, the, this timing did not add up. Like, you know, at a time when COVID, I mean, the UK just had had an appalling um, spike mm. of infection. Uh, it also hadn't had any snow. And so people weren't going out to have snowball fights until after that wave had passed. And all you, all you need to do is look at the numbers and go, well, this doesn't make any sense. But it's easier, as you say, it's easier it's when easier you've got a little us, bit of distance yeah. and you're not, yeah, you're not invested in that, that particular mask versus not mask argument that was very intense in the US. Um, but we're all we're all invested in our own arguments, and and it's harder to spot when you're in it. Yeah, when you need your your side, as it were, to be right. You know, whether that's in a political side or whether it's I don't know. Even in I'm sure it, amongst scientists, where the, some people have one theory of how things work and 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 others have another, it can be easy to interpret information in the way that suits what you already believe. Yeah. It's harder. To- I mean, I don't I don't want to be to be too kind of pessimistic about this no, exactly. um, because obviously you <laughs> know, every, you evidence earlier, does matter yeah. well, I mean people do pay attention to evidence people do pay attention to facts people can change their minds but you know let, let's not overrate mm. our attention to evidence and let's not overrate our uh, willingness to change our minds we're we're so you know we're social primates and what our friends and our colleagues think of course is it's really always going to matter yeah like we're hardwired for that yeah. to be the case yeah um, yeah um, and yeah, you, you, there are no prizes for being right about climate change, for example, if you're ostracized for being right about climate change, because the climate's going to do what the climate's going to do. I mean, if you're Xi Jinping or Joe Biden, then maybe what you think about climate change matters. But you no, know, if you're Tim or Ed, actually, we do not have the ability to change the climate, except as one of 8 billion people. Mm-hmm. Have the same impact as as anyone else. So, if you happen to have completely the wrong view on climate change, it's not actually you're not going to be personally punished for it because you're wrong about the world. But you you will be socially punished for it if you have a view that's different from your friends and you tell them, then you know you, you'll suffer as a result. So, we're very attuned to what people like us, right thinking people, believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that tends to govern what we think more than the evidence. Well, just thinking about other ways that people might be led astray by what they see in the media or social media, um, and 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 especially when this comes down to numbers and stats, um, how can like the definitions of words themselves affect how we think about numbers and evidence-based claims? For example, if you saw a claim related to nurses and whether their pay had gone up in the last few years or down yeah. um how can yes. the, how can words themselves you know affect how we think about that sort of claim yeah okay so like have has nurses pay gone up in the last few years or not okay i can answer that question for you with a little bit of googling but first i need you to know first i need to know what you mean by pay what you mean by the last few years what you mean by up <laughs> and what you mean by nurse right Okay, and I know this sounds absurd, but hear me out. So the last few years, obviously, we all know that I can pick, you know, a two-year period or a five-year period or a 10-year period to suit my, because numbers go up and down, right? They bounce around. So I I can pick a particular time horizon 
if I'm trying to make a particular kind of claim. So first of all, when you say the last few years, I'd like to, I'd like to see the graph and to see whether you're cherry picking particular starting and end point. Okay, second, up. What do you mean by up? Well, as we're starting to learn the hard way, real terms or nominal terms really matters. So let's say nurses' pay has increased by 5% in nominal terms, but inflation's 10%. Well, it's gone up in nominal terms, and it's gone down in real terms. Both those things are true. So, and, and it's quite often, you quite often find that something's gone up in real, in, gone up in nominal terms and down mm -hmm. in real terms. Mm -hmm. And the opposition will say the government has cut funding and the government will say we've increased funding and they're both correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. For, for, for some definition. So I just need to know, I mean, you know, I mean, personally, as an economist, I tend to prefer to think in real terms, but a lot of people think in nominal terms. I wouldn't say that's wrong to think in nominal terms, but you just got to know what you're doing. So then pay, what do we mean by pay? Are we talking about the hourly rate, for example? Or are you talking about the you know, the typical take-home pay? Yeah. So in some professions, overtime pay is really important. And you might find that somebody feels that they've got a pay cut because there's been a ban on overtime, for example, even if the hourly rate has gone up, they might feel they haven't got access to the overtime. Or, or what, I mean, I don't know the, the details for nurses, but whether it's hourly or annual, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know, this stuff matters. And then the final thing, you would think there can't possibly be a dispute about this, but of course there is, is what do you mean by a nurse? Um, and so more or less has discuss, discussed various examples of this. So there was an argument, Jeremy Hunt was making a claim about the amount of money spent on maternity care. And he included maternity nurses, but did not include midwives. Right. And actually almost all the medical professionals were, almost all the medical professionals working on maternity care are in fact midwives. They're not doctors, not obstetricians, they're not maternity nurses, they're midwives. Uh, is a midwife a nurse? Well, I think for many plausible, you could make a case that a midwife is a nurse, or you could say, well, no, actually a midwife is not a nurse, but like, you got to be clear. Yeah. And that uh, part-time versus full-time nurses is another important distinction. Nurses working in hospital versus um, community uh, nurses or health visitors. Very often, there's no right or wrong answer to any of these questions. You just need to define your terms mm. before you um, before you try to interpret what you're what you're being told. I could even go sort of one level deeper and going back to the real uh, real pay versus nominal pay, because for 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 real pay, people could calculate that in a different way, right? Because they could just factor in inflation in different ways, or they you know yeah, different measures of inflation, and, and there's no there's no single correct measure of inflation. Mm. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. So there are lots of ways you can have these arguments. And I think if you're trying to understand the world, you you might well want to look at two or three different definitions and say, okay, because they're giving you a better sense. Or you, or you might want to look at the average nurse or maybe the median nurse, or maybe you want to look at the total amount of money that's being spent on nurses. Or, there are lots of ways to do this. I mean, even that how many nurses are employed by the NHS is going to depend on whether two part-time nurses count as one nurse or two nurses. Yeah. And, there's, and again, like, you can make a perfectly defensible case for either. But if before we have the argument, I just need to know what definition you're using. So this is, I call this in the book, premature enumeration, which is the tendency that um, smart, numerate people have to jump to the numbers before we know what the definitions right, right, of right. the numbers are. And we can, we can lead ourselves astray because we're in the spreadsheet already, mm. slicing and dicing, figuring out the average, and you know, because we feel comfortable with the numbers and we haven't stopped to go, I, actually... What is this real or nominal? Um, I mean, it, it's amazing. I, I find how often I'm 
reading descriptions of data that don't specify quite basic facts about the data. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm being told. Like, your your claim is not even wrong because I I, I don't understand I insufficient. It, yeah. yeah. Yeah, insufficient effort, insufficient um, detail to evaluate to know what evaluate its, its wrongness yeah. or rightness. Yeah, um, and that's yeah. interesting. And if you think if you think about the um, in the financial crisis, I think is a really interesting case because there was a lot of very sophisticated maths being done on the concept of risk. Like the, this is a risky asset or this is a safe asset, and there were there were ways to measure risk that I think if you look carefully at what those ways were, you would say well, this is a very flawed or partial or fragile measure of risk um but of course it is because i mean risk itself is a really hard concept uh, but people were doing very very deep mathematics uh on the numbers but their actual grasp of what the numbers meant was extremely shallow and extremely fragile and that blew up the world economy and is that because like what were they their differences in defining things what were the things that they were defining differently that led to that so one one interesting concept is value at risk. And the value at risk, if I remember rightly, um, w- would basically say, uh, how much money could you lose on with 10% probability on a particular day? And that was defined as the value at risk. So, I mean, if I were to say, um, you know, Ed, there's a 5% chance that you'll be murdered by a, an axe-wielding psychopath if you walk out your door every day. What, what's the value at risk? Zero. 90% of the time, you'll be fine. Uh, more, I mean, it's actually 95% of the time, but more than 90% of the time, you'll be fine. And so by the value at risk metric, there's zero risk. Like, because on a day that is worse than 90% of the days, you still don't get murdered. <laughs> right. But you would, but if I were to describe this to you and say, so you're completely safe, you would say, that doesn't feel very safe at all. I mean, I would, I would be lucky to make it to the end of the summer without being And that's the, because of the definition of value at risk being, it has to be over 90%. It's a yeah. It's a, it's a what's the ten percent thing? So it it has a particular definition of what kind of risk is relevant, mm-hmm. and so something a, a risk that could destroy your bank with zero point one percent probability every day, like it's going to take your bank out this decade. It will, <laughs> right, right, um, right. But but doesn't register at all on the value at risk. So you know when you look at it like that, you go, well, that's a problem. I mean, another problem is just. Um, a lot of what was going on was people were measuring correlations between between different assets. But correlation is a really tricky thing when you think about it. So let's say uh, a financial analyst called Paul Wilmot explained this to me a long time ago, and it was always stuck with me. So let's say I'm trying to measure the correlation between Adidas and Nike shares. Well, for for a while, they're very correlated because they're both you know, making sportswear. But let's say that uh, Nike are completely invested in, uh, I don't know, Oscar Pistorius, for example. I don't know whether they were. And like they've totally got this massive advertising campaign that's all tied the Nike brand irrevocably to Oscar Pistorius. And then Oscar Pistorius stands trial for murdering his girlfriend and is found guilty. Well, that's suddenly Nike and Adidas, who have been correlated, um, suddenly they're anti-correlated because suddenly everyone is abandoning Nike and they're buying Adidas. So, so now they're, they're inversely correlated. It's not, I mean, it's a, it's a rather sort of ghoulish and extreme mm. example, but I mean, this sort of thing happens all the time. You'd have two assets that are uh, negatively correlated and then suddenly they're positively correlated. Right. For, because 
because there was always a connection. That's why there's a negative correlation. There was always a connection between them. And suddenly yeah. the, the, the world changes in some way. And suddenly the negative correlation becomes a positive correlation. I mean, this is not, not hard to think of examples of this. I mean, in the energy system, for example, you could you can think of examples where demand for one form of energy is competing with demand for another form of energy. And then suddenly something flips. There's a, there's a war. Uh, the Russians start cutting off the supply of gas and suddenly all forms of energy are suddenly dramatically correlated. I mean, this is mm. this sort of thing happens a lot. And you've got a problem if you're making a, if you're in the position of, say, AIG, where right. you're you're writing a $278 yeah. trillion dollars worth of mm -hmm. insurance or something, forget what the number was. It was a very, 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 very that's probably the wrong number, but it's, you know, two, maybe it was $2.7 trillion. It was an enormous number that no one company could hope to pay. Um, they're writing all this insurance for all these banks. And, and a lot of this insurance is predicated on the fact that, well, all these bad things can't go wrong at the same time. That's why we have an insurance company. Right. Except maybe if your understanding of the world is fundamentally wrong, then suddenly all the bad things do happen at exactly the same time for exactly the same reason, mm. uh, which is pretty much what happened to AIG. So it's um, if any yeah, decisions being made are predicated on things being correlated in the past, but actually you don't fully understand the reason why and therefore don't anticipate or predict them not being correlated in the future or and yeah. then then you're going to make bad decisions and um yeah you could be lost or worse and bringing this back to, to to everyday statistics why would it be that you don't fully understand why they're correlated the most straightforward reason that you wouldn't fully understand it is because somebody else gathered the numbers based on some historical data typed them into a database or a spreadsheet and then you got the numbers but then you're, you're down the chain, right? So now you've just got numbers. These numbers don't have any meaning to you mm -hmm. at all. And now you're analyzing numbers. You're doing your clever thing. You're unleashing your machine learning algorithm or you're, you know, you're, you know, finding correlations or whatever it is that you're doing. And they're just numbers. There's no connection to anything. And so you're, you're completely incapable at, at that point of taking a step back and going, huh, could there be some kind of flip in the state of the world that totally changed the correlations between these two numbers? Well, you're not in a position to do that because you're not even thinking about what these numbers represent. You're just a, at that point, you're a spreadsheet monkey. Well, this, um, and I mean, I don't mean this in a dismissive way. Some of my best friends are spreadsheet monkeys, but <laughs> yeah, no, it, there's a, there's a decontextualization of how the data has been gathered to the people, the people who are analyzing it. Um, and that could be yeah. the case in many different industries. Um, it, le it leads me yeah. very nicely on to the next question I had, which is um, in, in How to Make the World Add Up, um, I'm going to quote to you, big data represents a huge and underscrutinized change in the way statistics is being collected. What, what did you mean by this and, and why does it matter? Yeah. So the, the argument I make in How to Make the World Add Up about big data is that it all reminds me of the time that uh, science itself was emerging. So if you go back to the 1600s, you have this very interesting moment where some of the world's leading scientists and some of the world's leading alchemists were the same people, people like Hooke and Newton. And science was just emerging and you had the, you know, the Académie Française and, and uh, the Royal Society and uh, Marion Mersenne, the, this great monk and mathematician, the Mersenne Primes guy, who was called the Postbox of Europe, who was was building these links, these social networks between scientists and sharing results. And so this norm, this norm is approaching in science. This norm is emerging in science of of sharing, comparing, scrutinizing, replicating. 
And it's not emerging in alchemy, even though you've got the same people with the same experimental methods. They're not sharing the results in alchemy. Uh, they're keeping it all a secret for obvious reason. Like if you figure out how to turn lead into gold, you don't want everybody to right, know how to course, do it. Yeah. And so, I mean, so alchemy, obviously one of the reasons why alchemy is didn't really go anywhere is that it turns out you can't use a chemical process to turn lead into gold and there is no elixir of eternal youth. So those are the two things they're trying to do can't do them. So obviously that's going to stymie your progress, but you would still think that you're going to learn something about chemistry as you try to turn lead into gold. I mean, you'll learn something, won't you? And it turns out, no, they didn't learn anything. And they didn't learn anything because they didn't share anything. They weren't cross-checking each other. And they also, not unreasonably, assumed that people might have done this before and hidden their results. So there's constantly the sense of like, well, somebody must have, maybe somebody did it a generation ago or, or, or a century ago, or maybe back in the time of the ancient Greeks, but the secret's been lost to history. Meanwhile, everything in science is like publish, check, publish, check, replicate, cross-check. So how why does this remind me of big data? Well, I probably don't need to tell you because the a lot of the big data sets that are being gathered are being gathered privately for profit. And, you know, why would Facebook or Google tell you anything about what they're doing mm. with their data? Yeah. Um, and obviously, I don't mean to suggest that you know, what Google's doing with big data is alchemy. I mean, clearly, they're making progress. Clearly, they're learning things. But I think that the the fact that the norms are of secrecy rather than transparency is a problem and a problem that we need to think hard about. And you and I, Ed, we, we've already had this conversation about, because obviously privacy is a huge concern and de-anonymization is a huge concern. So it's not as simple as just, well, everyone should release all the data all the time. Mm. I mean, we can't do that either. But we need to think much harder about how the data that are being gathered can be used for the public good. And I don't think that that's a, I don't think that's a conversation we're having broadly enough that I don't think enough people are involved in that conversation. I don't think senior politicians are, are very engaged with that conversation. Right. And I don't think it's really in Google's interest or Facebook's interest or any of these companies' interest to, uh, to talk too much about this stuff. No, and there's a, a certain amount of, you know, yeah, obviously in a private company, you know, company secrets, what goes on behind closed doors, you know, they're not going to reveal the secrets of their algorithms and how they work if they're making money off them. Um, and I think... Yeah. And, they, and they get in trouble when they do. So every now and then Facebook will say, oh, we did this experiment and ev everyone completely loses their mind that Facebook, there was one where they, I think they tweaked their news feed uh, and some people were shown slightly happier news and some <laughs> people were shown slightly sadder news. And then they measured like, how people felt and, and uh, everyone was like, oh, you know, Facebook deliberately, you know, distressed people. And you think, well, I mean, Facebook do this all the time. Yeah. And maybe sometimes they do it in a formal experiment that they don't tell you about. Often they just do it and they don't really they're mm. not really seriously asking anything of the consequences but like the one time they actually publish yeah they're trying results, to find they get, out they get they're trying to find out how they might yeah. have less adverse effects of but still make money um and then yeah, yeah if people are going to criticize them for that then it's an incentive for them to well actually we'll just we'll just do things without telling you then yeah absolutely i mean don't, don't, i'm not defending facebook for a moment i mean i, mean, I have an intense personal dislike <laughs> of facebook you know, absolutely despise them but but i you know, clearly 
they have no incentive. I think there's um... to tell us what they're to tell us what they're doing, and then the the few occasions where they do tell us what they're doing, we yell at them even more. So yeah, what? Why well, would that you... I mean that goes a bit back to psychology in a way as well, because not just if you're a company, but if you're the government, for example, and you want to, you know, have evidence based policy. Well, how do you get evidence based policy? You've got to do experiments to find out which policies work better, and that means trying some policies in some areas perhaps geographically and other policies in other yeah. areas for example and that's an experiment and then the some members of the public might feel that actually we don't like being experimented on but the alternative is to just well the the politicians will impose whichever policies they reckon will probably do the thing that they yeah. want you do you do the uncontrolled yeah, experiment exactly. and you don't learn anything yeah yeah absolutely i mean this is something this is a, an argument that that i rehearsed in uh, an earlier book called adapt mm -hmm. which is all about the importance of experiments and trial and error and um yeah it's, it's vitally important there's so much stuff we don't understand and if you want to figure out the truth you you will often need to run an experiment and you need to pay due attention to the potential harms of the experiment and to consent informed consent and all of these things i mean i'm not saying it's just like hey experiments are great we should run experiments all the time don't worry yeah to be careful but um i think if i was just to, to nudge the world towards more experiments or fewer experiments i would definitely be nudging towards more experiments well thinking uh, not necessarily about experiments specifically but about stats that affect the population as a whole um i think you argue in your book that we should be paying a bit more attention to statistical agencies such as the uk's office for national statistics ons um why why should we be paying more attention to them and why should we trust them more than we perhaps do? Uh, I think because I, I describe in the book that th these agencies are producing statistical bedrock. Now, the, 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 the foundations of everything that we know and do um, are often based on data that only governments are really in a position to, to gather. Um, and we take them for granted. We absolutely take them for granted. So, I mean, obviously, there are lots and lots of private sector companies that gather data and publish data and so on, but they're almost always reliant on fundamentals such as the census or the, um, the Office for National Statistics publishing data on uh, price inflation, for example. Or, I mean, the, uh, I mean, the ONS uh, COVID survey in the UK. Um, these agencies across the world are doing, I think, really important work. And we tend to only notice them when something goes mm. wrong. There is a tendency for governments to put them under pressure and to, to blame them for bad news when, in fact, the politician is the one who's produced the bad news and the, the statisticians are just the people who've measured it. And, I mean, I describe in the book the, the pressure statisticians are sometimes put under, especially in less developed economies where they've been prosecuted they've been sacked in some cases they've been threatened with families being murdered or if you go back in history the, you know you do not want to be running the census mm. for joseph stalin because he will ha he will have you shot when right, the census right. inevitably produces the numbers that he doesn't like i mean this is this is in fact what happened so but i think these people are they're kind of heroes they're, they're doing such important work i think it's similar to um the people who maintain our sewers, for example, mm. or the people who maintain the electricity grid, keep the lights on. There's that same sort of sense of we take them for granted. Uh, we get very cross if anything goes wrong. And otherwise, just like we, we just shrug our shoulders. We don't seem yeah, to care. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got no interest. I think that's a real shame. It's all so I mean, we would describe the roads, the sewers, the electricity as infrastructure. And I think there is such a thing as statistical infrastructure as well. 
the the institutions that gather and disseminate and check the data that we rely on and we you know as with many other forms of infrastructure we 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 just think it's kind of boring and we're not interested and it's so important well it, it, i mean it's it's really obvious to to me as like a member of the public why you know the the infrastructure such as sewers and roads being maintained benefits me but i guess not quite so intuitively obvious why um the uh, essentially a government agency collecting data on the population in various ways benefits me as a, as an individual yeah. or as or as not you know a member of the government itself but yeah. like how 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 does it benefit us in in general yeah, yeah i mean i think this this connects to this sort of sense of of taking things for granted like some stuff is so invisible mm. that we we can't even imagine what it would be like if we didn't have it so so for example with all these arguments about inflation like prices going up to measure inflation, someone needs to go and check all the prices. Right. Otherwise, course, you just yeah. <laughs> have this vague sense that some there's some yeah. stuff out there that, it, you know, it's, it's harder to make ends meet. And you're having a conversation with, with your employer, for example, about the salary or a trade union is negotiating. Like, well, what what is the salary that will keep up with the cost of living? Well, I mean, you've got no idea unless mm -hmm. someone is measuring yeah. in some way the cost of living. And, of course, these measures are not perfect. In fact, it's theoretically impossible to produce a, a perfect measure of inflation because you, whenever prices change, what you buy will also change. So do you measure the change in the price of what you used to buy yeah. or do you measure the change in the price of the new thing? I mean, it's actually it's actually a really interesting sort of philosophical problem, but you, you need to try. Yeah, and I, I read, I don't, and I'm not an expert in this, but these, there's sort of like a, a sort of basket of goods that they decide are the things are going to be considered yeah. for have they gone up in price or gone down in price and that but the actual 700 different goods but and the services, actual things yeah. that they include haven't been consistent over time and by by design you know they've considered different items yeah otherwise but otherwise you'd be you'd be saying well the price of gramophones <laughs> is uh is right really high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know but actually what you want to do is you know you needed to measure the price of sony walkman and then you need to measure the price of a cd right. player and then an ipod and then it's a spotify subscription yeah, yeah 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 you know how many how many gramophone records in a spotify subscription i mean there is no answer so these things are really hard and these you know and what we buy uh changes but nevertheless it's it's possible to come up with an approximation you could put some bands around it you can say well inflation is definitely more than x and it's definitely less than y you can do that or or to get even more basis uh, basic the census how many people are living in a particular area if you don't know that you can't decide where the boundaries of parliamentary constituencies should be because you don't know how many voters there are you can't make decisions about um demand for uh you know sewerage demand for for um I mean, setting up a new business, for example, you, you'd say, well, how many people are there in this area? Mm. Will, I, will I have enough customers? To do that, you're, you're probably relying on a private data provider, but the data provider is using underlying information from the census. Actually, almost everything that we do it, when we're trying to understand society, at some stage it ties back to the right. census. Because yeah, at yeah. some stage you're, you're adjusting for population. You've got to know what the population mm. is. Um, so there are lots of examples of... of Re uh, this is why I describe it as bedrock. You don't see it, but if it wasn't there, everything else just starts to collapse mm. because you haven't got firm foundations for for all the other decision, all the other data that you're gathering and using to help make decisions. And it's it, it's notoriously difficult as well, just from the mild exposure I've had to ONS and the way that they collect the census. I mean, you think 
you might think intuitively think, oh, well, they just go and somehow count all of the people in the country, but you're you're relying on them, people essentially filling out a form and sending it back to you. So inevitably, a lot of people, I mean, a percentage, however big it is, of the population doesn't do that. So then you need to know, well, how well how many people didn't do that? Because otherwise, we're not yeah. getting the truth. How many people do, didn't do that? And and also, how are they systematically different in some way right. to the people Right, is there who a did? certain demographic? Which the answer is, well, yeah. almost certain. Almost certainly yes, right? And they there's, have ways of... There's a reason why they didn't. Exactly. And they have they have ways of, of uh, figuring this out and approximating this. But, um, you know, those methods might not be perfect and it, and they're, they're quite difficult to do. Um, so... Yeah. Uh, for more or less, we years ago, we interviewed uh, census enumerators. Uh-huh. So these people who were kind of roaming all over the country following up census forms that haven't been filled in and and trying to trying to track people down and being you know chased by dogs or geese or whatever <laughs> i mean it just um, yeah. and again just this it's a job that people didn't even think of existing mm. but that it's very important that it does and it's um just a yeah just a bit of an aside but um i think the kind of people who do these roles probably historically would have been relatively underpaid i think the the sort of role job role of data scientist now is becoming a sort of because of if you work for in industry if you work for you know google as a data scientist for example or any any other company um it's become a sort of high status well-paid job whereas there are a lot of people perhaps in government agencies and, and elsewhere in the economy who are doing things which are similar to what those data scientists at google might be doing but haven't historically been paid as much and it's not considered that kind of high status job and but it probably should be because not only is that fair but you also would get the best results if you actually you know made sure that the the most talented people were doing those jobs not that they aren't already talented of course but you get what i'm going yeah no i'm 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 all in favour of competent statisticians and data scientists exactly. over incompetent ones. And uh, and yeah, if you want people to know what they're doing, um, you, you're likely to have to pay the market rate. Otherwise, people will find something else to do with their maths. There's plenty plenty of stuff that people can do with a grasp of maths mm. and data mm. uh, that does not involve doing this sometimes thankless infrastructural work and, and just getting ignored or blamed by politicians. Indeed. Um, well, I'll, I'll ask you uh, one last question, Tim. Um, you conclude your book, um, How to Make the World Add Up, with some chapters titled Keep an Open Mind and Be Curious. I was wondering um, whether you feel particularly optimistic or pessimistic that people in general are starting to come around to the ways of thinking about numbers and statistics that we've discussed and that you discuss in your book. Um, in particular, in your own field of journalism, do you feel like there's a, a movement towards being more responsibly data driven? I think that there's a there's a bifurcation really. So so the the dumb end of journalism has <laughs> never been as dumb right, as okay, it is now. Okay. Uh, and the smart end of journalism has never been as smart, yeah. has never been as well connected Definitely to seems, experts yeah, as in, in my yeah, experience. Yeah. yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why I emphasize people's motivations as consumers of information as consumers of news it has never been easier to get access to really high quality information really cutting edge really thoughtful really interesting well explained um, by the very best people on any given subject in the world they're all out there and you can just read them you don't need to go through 
dozens of intermediaries. Um, they're, they're there on Twitter. They're blogging. Uh, journalists know where they are. Journalists are giving them voices. It's amazing. But you have to want to do it. You have to be motivated to educate yourself and sometimes to pop your own bubble. So I, I am hopeful that the opportunity is out there. Uh, the question is, with will we be motivated to take that opportunity? And why might we not be motivated? I mean, I guess, again, like you said, it comes down to the consumer. There's obviously a market for the um, your kind of journalism that is dedicated to finding the truth and not just yeah. having... There's a, I mean, there's a market for looking at people in bikinis. There's a market for... <laughs> right, exactly. For, Watching, watching ex-politicians eat uh, centipedes mm. in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, or do, do belly flops in Splash, and there's a, there's a market for celebrity gossip, and, right. and there's a market for hate. There's a market for hatred and, and yeah. for inflammatory conspiracy theories. There's a market for all of that. But there's also a market for great science journalism, great economics journalism, uh, you know, brilliant sort of curiosity. Maybe a better question to ask then is, do you think that the the market for yeah really really good science journalism and economics journalism is saturated or do you think there's actually quite a lot of room to expand from the current stuff on offer uh, i journalists are always experimenting with new forms uh, at the moment there's a big expansion in podcasting mm. you know here we are <laughs> and i i can't see that going away there'll be there'll be other forms there'll be new, there'll be there'll be new ways for both for smart journalists and for science communicators or academic communicators to reach people. But I don't see any sign of saturation. The world's a big place, more and more educated people, more and more connected. Um, but we've just got to keep helping fire people's curiosity. We've got to keep helping to motivate people to want to understand the world because they want to understand the world. You know, the problem is 90% solved. Great. Well, on that note, Tim, uh, let me just, before I let you go, ask, where can people find out more about uh, your work? Do you, do you have Twitter? It sounds like you do. I'm, I'm on the Twitter. I mean, I wouldn't particularly recommend that <laughs> as a way of finding out what I do. So, so my website is timharford.com. That's Harford, not Hartford. TimHarford.com, and there, there, there are links to my BBC podcast. There are regular updates for cautionary tales. Uh, my newspaper column goes up there after a, uh, a delay, so you can find out pretty much everything I'm doing from that point. But I would, I would recommend subscribing to Cautionary Tales, subscribing to the BBC more or less podcast feed, and uh, perhaps picking up a copy of the Financial Times every Saturday to read my column. Brilliant. Uh, on that note, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Tim. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Calstry, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. And the episodes are produced by Luca Lane. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram. Thank you.